What is up, my friend? This is episode number 18, and today we're going to be talking about how to write a nonfiction book. So if you've ever had the nudge to write a book, this episode is for you. So let's do this thing. Welcome to the Anthony John Amex podcast, helping entrepreneurs break through to new levels of peace, power, and profit. Prepare to open your mind to the proven tactics and strategies the world's leading intellects have used to avoid a stagnant career and achieve a life of freedom, purpose, and success. It's time to increase your levels of power with your host, Anthony John Amex. All right, well, welcome back. Today I'm bringing you Ralph Palinda, who owns a Christian publishing company called Choir. Now, he believes Christian publishers have upheld the status quo and protected toxic power structures within the faith, and he believes many people who have asked the wrong questions or maybe they've colored outside the lines of the typical you know, evangelicalism church thing, he believes they've been silenced. At Choir, he works to celebrate those who are challenging assumptions and pushing all of us outside of our own comfort zones. And that, my friend, is a big reason why I asked him to come onto the show to talk about how to write a nonfiction book, because, you know, the show is all about pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zones. Now, he also believes God is bigger than our boxes, and there's this revolution coming that's bubbling on the horizon, and one of his goals is to publish the manifesto that's getting nailed to the proverbial church door, right, just like Martin Luther did back in the day. Ralph wants to provoke the complacent while comforting the afflicted. And at Choir, he and his team provide concept to publication solutions and creative services for print and digital books, podcasts, and videos. They're committed to being author-centric, collaborative, and unconventional. And so when I heard what Ralph was up to, I thought, man, who better to fit the vibe of this show and help you learn how to write a nonfiction book? Now, before I bring Ralph on, I want to make sure you connect with me on Instagram for more epic content, some more strategies, inspiration, and advice on taking your life and business to new levels of freedom, purpose, and success. I post some beautiful images from my travels, um, plus I really pair them with a relevant message that really feeds your heart, mind, and soul, and I even take you behind the scenes of what you know, it takes to put this whole podcast together and my lifestyle, and well, sometimes you just got to see my stories for yourself, you know what I mean? So I'm on Instagram at, at AJAM. So go check it out and let me know what you're thinking about the podcast. And if there's a topic or something you'd like to hear more about, man, just hit me up on Instagram, shoot me a DM and let me know. I mean, I know this is called the Anthony John Amix podcast, but you know, this show isn't about me. It's really about you. I just didn't know what to call it. So I was just like, I'll just go with my name. Anyway, hit me up on Instagram at AJ Amix. So let's bring Ralph onto the show. Ralph, what up, brother? Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, so you are coming, uh, for those who are watching on the YouTubes, like you're coming from uh, your daughter or son? Son. Son, your son's room. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, so we have a two-bedroom place, and this used to be my office. Once awesome. the kid came, I got kicked out. So <laughs> I totally understand. I, uh, I'm just annexing it for this meeting, and then he'll kick me out again. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, cool, man. Well, today we're going to be talking about like how to write a nonfiction book. I think that's going to serve a lot of people. Um, so let's just kind of hop into this. So you own a publishing company, uh, but you, and you kind of publish really controversial books, talk about that, um, introducing you. So, but the thing is, is you haven't always published controversial books and, uh, you probably haven't always been on a mission to kind of give the finger to the traditional church who's attempting to silence (laughs) those, uh, people who are kind of exploring, you know, God outside the context of dogma. So what's kind of led you to this mission, man? Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting is I've been a graphic designer for about 20 years now. Uh, and so it was, uh, probably about 10 years ago, a good friend of mine, who's a veteran in the Christian publishing world had asked me to help him design some book covers. 
And it was something I'd always wanted to do, hadn't sure. done before. So I did that, loved it. And then he asked if I would do the interior of the book, which yes. I had not done before. But I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that. And coming from a design background where I'm doing marketing pieces and logos and stuff, sure. I thought, oh, it's easy to do a book interior. Whole different beast, man. Whole different beast. <laughs> and it's just like page by page checking that, you know, everything looks right and flows right. So that, that took a little bit to, to get down. But once I got that process figured out, there was several other authors who were self-publishing who started hiring me to help them with those, with their books. And then uh, eventually decided to start my own publishing company. Nice. And what, what we started with at first, the idea was that we knew people who were creating great content, but because they were self-publishing, they lacked the resources to make sure that the package matched the quality of the content. Awesome. And because people judge a book by its cover, it was kind of heartbreaking to see that these books were coming out, but they didn't get the respect they deserved because they didn't look professional. And so that's where we came in is wanting to kind of bridge that gap, operate in the space between traditional publishing and self-publishing. And what we found is that uh, as we were growing, the the authors that we tended to attract and the books we tended to attract continued to to get a bit more and more controversial. And it wasn't that we were seeking controversy for the sake of controversy, but what we found is that a lot of conversations that were worth having and conversations that were really engaging issues in the marketplace, typically traditional publishing wasn't comfortable putting those books out, especially mm -hmm. if they were from authors who didn't already have a huge following. Sure. And so there was this growing group of people that we were discovering who really had some good solid stuff to say um, but didn't have the, the backing they were looking for and so they found choir as a as a place kind of safe harbor <laughs> if you will um, and then we partner with them because we believe in in what they're trying to communicate and uh, and then getting these books out there so I think it as as time goes on we've accumulated more and more of these controversial type books and for us it's not that we agree 100% with everything we publish. So sure. if we feel it's a conversation worth having, um, then we want to put it out in the marketplace and let people wrestle with those ideas. So. Nice, man. So what about yeah. you is attracting all of these crazy controversial <laughs> authors? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think, I mean, my personal thing is I, I love books. I've been an avid reader my whole life. And what I found is the books that have impacted me the most are the ones that either challenged beliefs that I had or introduced me to, to beliefs or thoughts that I had that weren't even on my radar. Sure. And so knowing that those are the books that impacted me, I figured those are the types of books that I want to get behind and, and publish and put out there. And so I think kind of having that ethos behind it and that type of thinking, we don't want to put out stuff that's already out there. We don't want to rehash the same things that have you know, already been published. And so uh, when I get a manuscript submission and I read it and I, I feel that excitement within me because mm -hmm. I can feel that, you know, the intellectual wheels running, I can feel it challenging or convicting or uh, causing questions that I, you know, didn't wrestle with before, then I know that we're onto something. And then nice. I get really excited about, you know, this is a book that, that we need to get out there. Brilliant, dude. Why do you feel it's important for people to write a book? Like if they're called to write it, why do you feel it's important yeah. for them to do so? Well, what's interesting is I think because of pl proliferation of self-publishing um, and just the amount of books that are available now, it may be tough for someone who's just getting started thinking, you know, why do I put another book out there into the millions of other books that are out there? What's the yeah. point? And I think what people fail to realize is even if you're writing about a topic that has been covered before, if you're approaching it from your perspective, which is always going to be unique, if you stay true to yourself, then it's worth putting out there. So, you know, don't try and copy someone else. Don't try and rehash the same thing, but it's okay to approach a topic that's already been approached before, but if it's being filtered through the lens of your life, your views, your convictions, how you see things, then it is going to be unique and it is worth putting out there. 
I think the other thing that uh, a lot of people are leveraging books for now too is it's an instant way to build credibility. So sure. if you're looking into getting like a coaching practice or consulting or even want to do speaking engagements and things like that, the fact that you're a published author, even if you're self-published, uh, puts you leaps and bounds ahead of any potential competition in terms of uh, giving you legitimacy and having people want to book you for those events. Because, you know, if you're walking into, you wanted to speak at a conference and, you know, you may have a decent following, but there's nothing tangible for people to purchase afterwards to hold on to. Sure. It could be tough to get that, that speaking gig. But if you're, you know, if you approach the conference organizers or whatever, and you say, I'm a published author, this is my book, you know, it's sold fairly well and stuff, then it gives you that sense of legitimacy. So it can help um, in the business sense as well. But what I found is that most of the people that we work with, what's funny is they, and what I appreciate is they, they don't have these pie in the sky pipe dreams of, you know, selling a million copies and sure. know, becoming independently wealthy. For them, really what it comes down to is they have a burning message inside of them that they feel just has to come out to the world. And they're really more concerned about, I just want people to be able to read this and experience it, interact with it. And like, sure, if it makes money, great, but that's not their main motivation. So those are the people we like to work with because their passion transcends that the actual product itself and is really more about what is the contribution that they're making to the world. It makes sense, man. What are some of the big mistakes that you're seeing people make when they're kind of writing and publishing books? Number one mistake I'd say is definitely not knowing your audience. Mm. So uh, we see that all the time with submitted manuscripts where we try to ask the question, you know, who are you intending this book for? And often who they say and the way that it's written or what their book is about, it doesn't match. And so I think really getting clear on thinking, who, who am I writing this for? And sometimes it can be a bit daunting because, you know, you want your book to appeal to a wide range of people. The difficult part is if you try to appeal to everyone, you'll appeal to no one. Sure. And I mean, that's, that's a classic statement, but it holds true. Yeah. And so what I find what's helpful is just start with one person think of a single individual and whether it's a, a real person that you know, so like, you know, my cousin-in-law or something like that, where you can visualize them or make up a person, but be very specific about their details. How old are they? Um, what's their socioeconomic status? What are their beliefs? What's their background? And you almost create this character sketch. So if you can get really clear on that one person and write directly towards that one person, you'll find that you, you actually reach a broader audience because there's a group of people that touch the, um, multiple points of that person's so you know character yeah and so i think it helps to be really clear on that and so you want to make sure that your tone is matching that particular audience you know if you're writing to people who are more intellectual you have to make sure that you're you bust out that thesaurus you know (laughs) you're using the big words if you're writing to a younger audience you gotta ease back on the on the big words and make it a bit more relatable is your book more conversational do you want it to read like you're sitting across the table from someone or is it supposed to be a bit more academic? Are you diving into deep topics? Um, do you need to simplify it for our audience? And another thing that comes up is people will write as if their audience is uh, at the same place or the same journey that they're on. But oftentimes you have to take a few steps back and kind of get people caught up to speed to where you're at. So are you using terms that only insiders know? Or do you need to define those terms early on in the book so that your audience can follow along with what you're talking about. So it's things like that, but it really just boils down to knowing your audience, I think is, is a big one and writing from that perspective. It's good, man. So how does somebody like stay true to themselves, let the message come through them, uh, but don't get caught up in their head and being like, am I being academic enough? Am I being conversational <laughs> enough? Like, cause there's yeah. this fine, fine line where some people will totally get paralyzed and wanting to get it right. You know what I mean? 
rather sure. than letting this this thing uh, that's bigger than them come through them and they're just kind of the vessel for this. So how do they find that balance? Yeah, I think some of the best advice I've ever heard, and it's a quote, the attribution is contested, but it's something, that, you know, write drunk, edit sober. And nice. the thinking behind it is too often we try to limit ourselves too early in the process and we're, mm. we're trying to edit and refine and get it exact, you know, when it's first coming out. When in reality, you just need to get words on a page. Just, it's almost like a, you know, word vomit, brain dump, just get it all out there, put it down on paper. And then the hard work of editing comes in later. But if you try and edit too early on, not only are you stifling your creativity, but you're also limiting what you're saying and how you're saying it. And so it's much easier to work with a book when you have tons of content to work with and chip away and shape and refine and restructure than if you try and do it from, from the get-go. So I'd say for those folks, um, don't, even, don't even think about publishing, don't even think about editing, you know, ignore all those, just focus on, I need to get all this out on paper and then I'll figure out how to, how to adjust it later. Awesome, makes, makes a lot of sense. For somebody who's like, okay, cool, I know my target market, I'm just mm-hmm. gonna sit down, do the work, um, what advice do you have for them uh, before they like sit down to actually write it? I mean, they already know the audience. So like just kind of mm-hmm. organizing their thoughts, like what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think it's really important to have an outline. Um, and it's not necessarily that outline is going to correlate with the final. Sure. But it helps kind of having a general sense of direction and structure. There's some folks who are able to just sit down and start writing, and let it go. But I, I think those are probably more in the minority. So for most folks, I think it helps to have um, a rough breakdown of what the book's about and if you're having trouble kind of putting together an outline or figuring out what to write about uh, some other great advice I heard is start with you know whatever your subject is your topic is what are 10 questions that people are consistently asking in regards to this topic write those down and then what are 10 questions people should be asking but don't know to ask about this particular topic and right there you have 20 chapters Mm. that you could easily you know, using your expertise or your knowledge, fill in what those answers are, and then obviously rearrange and chip away as needed. But that's a really simple way, a simple approach to how do I start writing about, you know, this particular topic that, that excites me is thinking in terms of audience questions, not only what, what are they asking or what should they be asking that they aren't. Um, a tool that I like using for outlining and that we recommend for a lot of our authors, it's called Workflowy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's free to, to start an account. It, it's super easy to, to move and rearrange and totally. style stuff. So make sure you check that out. Yeah. A little plug for them. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, what about like, cause you know, I've, I've helped create a lot of courses, like online courses. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the frameworks uh, I always use is prison to paradise, you know, clear on the target market. So you're like, all right, what is, you know, before they even buy the program, what is their prison? What does it look like, sound like, feel yeah. like, and be very clear on that. And then on the other side of the course, what's the paradise? What, what's the transformation? What's the world going to look like, sound like, feel like? And then once we get clear on prison to paradise, we're like, what's everything they need to know to go from A to B, prison to paradise? Yeah. Yeah. It could, would that apply to writing a book, a nonfiction book? Would that, that framework oh, to, work as well? Totally, 100%. Because especially once you get into the marketing side of it, you have to think, what need is this book fulfilling? Yeah. You know, what uh, overarching question is this answering? What are, what are the things that people are wrestling with that this book is going to help help them sort through? Uh, and the more that you can connect that with emotional language, the more powerful sure. uh, your marketing and just the ability to, to communicate the book will be. So it's not just that you can communicate uh, a person's problem clearly. It's how does that problem connect with an emotional human need that they have? Because that's really how you're going to be able to capture people's attention and cause them to think not only is this book interesting, but it's something I need to read. 
Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And I also heard actually from one of your authors, uh, Megalie Lee Calvin. She yeah. was telling me about, um, I think it was four sections to her kind of writing a book, which is kind of the why, the what, the how, and the, and the if, right? Mm. Like, why is it important? Kind of outlining that, however long it takes. Yeah. What is the big idea, the concept, however long that takes? And then dive into the how to get the result, however long that takes. And then the if, and I do this on webinars all the time, teach a lot of clients this, where the if is like, kind of what's at stake? It's like, look, if, if you get this, here's what's going to be at stake for you in a pleasurable way. And you outline mm-hmm. all of the, the results. And then also, like, you read the whole book. Uh, if you don't take my advice here, here's kind of what's at stake <laughs> on the pain side for you. Yeah, yeah. You can anchor in that way and then kind of wrap it up and do a summary. So I've heard that, that kind of flow for creating That's a great outline, approach. And uh, that would make a lot of sense for me. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Especially if you're dealing with something that um, has direct application to people's lives. So it's something that's going to affect daily decisions or the way they live. Um, Yeah. That sounds really, really impressive. Awesome. For somebody who wants to use like a book to establish themselves as an expert, they want to go out, build an audience of incredible Mm -hmm. people. How do they like carve out the time to to write this book? Right. I mean, they got to move heaven and earth sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a tricky question. I think that's one that you, there's not really a general blanket, statement that applies to everyone. I think most folks, what most folks find helpful is to actually schedule in writing time. Uh, I think a lot of research suggests that writing and creativity happens best first thing in the morning, especially because if you wait until later in the day, usually the day gets away from you. There's a lot of things to do. And by the end of the day, you've got zero writing time. So again, doesn't work for everyone, but for most people actually carving out the time at the beginning of their day, adding an extra hour, waking up an extra hour earlier. So sitting down and working on it, setting aside that time is what's going to make a big difference. Uh, I know there's a lot of authors too, who let's say you have a full-time job, family, you're juggling a lot. Sometimes they'll use vacation time from work and actually get away for a writing retreat. So instead of doing a vacation, they'll use it as a chance to go up to the mountains or rent a beach house or getting in some place that gives them the the time and the space, the mental clarity to actually devote to, to what they're working on. So Not everyone can do that, but if you have the means, that's a very effective tool as well. Um, And I think it really comes down to being honest with yourself and knowing how you work. There's some folks who like to chip away uh, at a book. Uh, They set a schedule and they just, you know, crank at it at the same time every day and devote time and and chip away little by little. There's other folks who work more on the inspirational model where it's when inspiration hits and when they're feeling motivated, then they sit down and get to it. I think the that second version is a bit more rare and probably a bit more difficult, but there are folks who that works really well for. And if that's you, that's awesome. But I think being honest with yourself and not romanticizing the process, because I think that'll cause for really uh, early burnout and um, just frustration. So don't romanticize it. Uh, Writing a book, it's hard work. Uh, You will eventually get fed up and frustrated with it. You're going to question yourself a lot. You're, self-worth and identity is just going to be, you know, stripped rare. But I think um, being honest with how you work best, um, what works for you realistically, and then sticking to that, that plan. Nice. Tell me more about this idea of uh, the process kind of strips away your self-worth. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? So it's interesting. We hear from a lot of our authors that, especially if they're writing their first book is, you know, one minute they think what they're writing is brilliant. And the next minute they're like, this is crap. Who's going to read this? Mm. <laughs> so you're constantly fluctuating between the two. And I think that's normal. And I think it's healthy to some degree. I think if you have an overinflated ego, um, your work is probably not great, honestly, um, because you're not able to see it clearly. You're not able to 
really what you want to do is approach the writing from the perspective of your audience. And if you're going into the process is this is me, 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 then you're just going to have a very flat one dimensional project. But on the flip side, if you're too self-conscious um, and you're too debilitated, then you're not ever going to put pen to paper because you're just going to be overwhelmed with, well, it's not going to be good enough or what are people going to say? Or they're going to criticize it. So then you're going to find this healthy balance, but throughout the process, you're going to vacillate between the two pretty wildly. And I think it's important to have folks in your life, uh, maybe a select few who you've told what you're doing, you told what you want to accomplish and they can kind of hold you accountable. People who are going to um, give you encouragement when you need it or read, you know, chapters or snippets here or there to give you feedback. Cause I think a lot of times if we isolate ourselves too much during the writing process, we get in our heads too much and it's easy to talk ourselves out of things. Whereas if we have, again, a handful of trusted people that you can send little snippets to, they can read, give you some feedback. And that encourages you when you see someone interact with your work, mm. it reminds you, Oh, this is, this is what I'm doing this for, right. Is to actually communicate and have, you know, it may be a, a monologue in a sense because you're not sure. actually talking to someone, but really you're, you're communicating, you're interacting with someone through a written word. So that can help kind of keep the fire going, keep you motivated. Makes sense. Do you, you know, you, you publish a lot of books. How many pub- books have you guys published up to this point? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, honestly. Uh, we're probably getting close to 15 or 20. Exactly. So I'm curious, uh, uh, do you find the authors who, uh, you know, they write the book, they publish the book. And I think there's two places that people can create from. Mm-hmm. One place is creating from a place that we have something to prove to the world. And we're like, I'm mm-hmm. writing this book because I have something to prove. And then there's, there's another place that some people can write to where they, like at a very core level, uh, both mentally, both emotionally, and in their spirit, they, they know they have nothing to prove, nothing to defend, and they're really letting this creation flow through them. It doesn't mean they mm-hmm. sit down, they just download the whole book. That's not what I mean. They're, they still sit down, but it's just coming from a different place. It's like the book yeah. is coming as an overflow of their purpose rather than something to prove. We could call mm-hmm. that ego. Mm-hmm. Do you find the one from the latter, meaning the person who's creating as an overflow of their purpose, do you feel like that book has more power and it sells better rather than the one that's going out to prove something? That's a good question. I I don't know. I can't honestly answer when it comes to sales, but my suspicion and what I've seen personally is that the books that are born out of passion tend to have the most longevity. Yeah. So the ones where you're writing out of something to prove, you'll, you may even find as the author that in three, four years, you look back and read that book and then you don't even believe that same stuff anymore. And that's kind of frustrating. Sure. <laughs> but I think when it's, when it's born out of that deep place, like you're talking about a deep passion, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're going to read that book and it's still going to ring true because it's coming from something much, much more intrinsic to who you are. And I think those are the books that have the, the staying power, the longevity uh, in the marketplace. That makes sense to me. I know when we wrote our pretty much our first like real record. It was like a four, yeah, it was a four song EP, put our heart and soul into that record. Uh, I can still listen to that record to this day. And it just gives me goosebumps and chills because yeah. we had spent the time, the energy, uh, it was just really good. You know what I mean? And uh, when I write my book, cause I haven't written one yet, that's, that's okay. definitely the experience that I'm going for, which is I want to be, you know, when I'm 90, I want to be able to read this thing or feel it or, hold it and, and still be very, very proud of it. Because I think in today's sure. marketplace, especially with the self-publishing, you write the book for the sake of writing a book, some, not all, uh, mm-hmm. for the expert piece, for the credibility mm-hmm. piece, um, mm-hmm. rather than really allowing like a legacy piece almost to, to yeah. flow through, yeah. you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's not to say that one is better than the other. I mean, they, they both serve their purpose. But I think uh, getting clear on what you're doing 
and why you're doing it. Like you said earlier, I think that's, that's a major component because then you're going to approach the project differently. Well, the people I have met who have written a book for credibility's sake, <laughs> they're still, they still don't feel credible even after they've mm. written the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're, they're trapped in this, this bullshit success equation, which is, well, when I X plus Y plus Z equals success, right. Yeah. When I write a book, then I'm credible. Well, they write the book, they still don't feel credible. So they take yeah. their success yeah. equation and move, move it beyond a little bit. Well, it's when I make X mm-hmm. money mm-hmm. rather than the author. Who's like, I have something amazing to say coming mm-hmm. from your, you use the word passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm credible now because I, I am period. And I have yeah. some really yeah. cool stuff to say. And then they birth that thing and do the, the work. Um, those people tend to do very, very, very well rather than the people caught up in the success equation. Yeah. Yeah. definitely agree. A good friend of mine, Jamal, who's a life coach, the way he puts it is when you outsource your self-worth, yeah. then you're always going to be chasing kind of the next validation marker. Whereas if you, if you recognize your self-worth and, and that what you have to offer, it comes from within. And this is even part of Meg's book is I am my own sanctuary. It's yeah. discovering that everything you need already resides within you. How do you tap into that? And so now you're not outsourcing that self-worth, but it's coming from inside of you. Then you're able to move in a, in a place of power. Awesome, dude. I'm a big fan of principles. Are there any principles that you recommend people to follow um, and implement as they're writing a book? Because principles like stand the test of time. So they're not just strategies, principles. Yeah. Uh, principles, man, there's so many. Do you want any like specific areas of writing or... Uh, yeah, the areas or areas of writing like this that apply to like shipping your expertise in a nonfiction book, so to speak. Okay. Um, well, definitely the, the one I said earlier is knowing your audience. Sure, sure. Um, another one that you referenced earlier is knowing your, your why statement, your passion. Um, there's a great book and even Ted talk by Simon Sinek, which I'm yep. sure you're aware of start with why getting really, really clear on what you're passionate about and what your purpose is in the world. And I think that allows uh, the content to flow more easily. Sure. Um, I think being authentic is a big one. Uh, we'll see with some of our authors, um, they'll do a first draft, second draft of their book, and then we'll call in uh, a focus group to read it and respond to it. And more often than not, the focus group feedback is typically around, hey, add more personal stories mm-hmm. or talk more about how this has affected you personally or how it's filtered through your life. And I think that's a big one is that when you're writing, especially if you're writing from a place as the expert, people want to know, you know, is this information that's born out of your life or are you just regurgitating something that you heard somewhere else? So I think that's a really powerful one is to make sure that your content is infused with your life and who you are, because I think that's what connects most with people is that personal element, that story element. So get in touch with that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of the vulnerability, vulnerability that comes through that writing process, because more often than not, that's what people are going to hang on to and latch on to. So ideas are great, but they can tend to be abstract. So just make sure it's filtered, filtered through your life and your experiences. Nice. I was reading a book from uh, Stephen Pressfield. Um, I don't remember the book exactly. I mean, I remember the book, but not the title. Uh, I think it was something about like the title of the book was maybe nobody gives a shit about what you write or something of that nature, I think was the name <laughs> yeah. of the book. Great book, by the way. So Stephen really recommended that when you write a book, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, this played to any writing, that it still mm. has to follow the hero's journey story arc, even mm. in nonfiction. Would you agree with that? I think that's interesting. Um, I'd probably have to sit on that more, but my first reaction would be, I think you have to make a distinction between hero's journey as a formula and hero's journey as a concept. And so I would agree that as a concept, yeah, you're, you're following kind of the basic storylining premise, 
But I think too often we can get caught up in this formulaic response where it's like, oh, I have to, you know, it's step one, step two. And then you're following the exact points of the journey and identifying all the, all the, the markers of the journey. And that, that may be a distraction. Again, I'm just answering. Sure, sure, yeah. But awesome. Yeah. I think, I think the hero's journey is, um, it's a universal principle. And I think if you treat it as such, it'll serve you better than to turn it into a A plus B plus C formula sure. for writing. And another thing they talked about, and I think it was, it was pretty good. You know, a lot of people think hero's journey, uh, well, I'm the, I'm the hero in the hero's journey story and I got to paint the story. Mm-hmm. Where another kind of principle applying this in an overarching theme is the person reading the book is, yeah. right, uh, going on that hero's journey. And you're, you're really guiding them through that, that yep. sequence, that journey, but you are keeping your avatar in mind. Yeah, I first heard that, uh, Donald Miller. Yeah. Um, uh, New York Times bestseller, he has a story brand workshop and that's what he talks about that most companies make the mistake of making themselves the hero, right. whereas they need to play the part of the sage and it's really yeah. the, their audience or their client is the hero. And so that really shifts the perspective because now, um, again, it goes back to what we said earlier is focusing on who is reading your book. You're talking to them. Can you picture them? Do you understand their emotional needs, what they're trying to accomplish, pitfalls and all that? And then that really helps um, to frame the the work around around the audience. Awesome, man. Now I know you run a publishing company. So mm-hmm. this question may be like the answer to this question may be a little biased, but fuck it, okay. go with it anyway. <laughs> Would you recommend somebody self-publish a book or go with the publishing company? That's a great question. Uh, we've actually had a couple people approach us um, and we've recommended that they just self-publish. And mm-hmm. the, the biggest distinction for us is, again, we want to operate in between the self-publishing and traditional publishing model. Sure. And the reason for that is, for the most part, the folks who are forced to self-publish um, do so because they don't have access to larger publishing. But unfortunately, they also lack the resources and the abilities to self-publish well. Um, so if you are someone who does have a background in design or has the means to hire a legit designer and you can do all this stuff yourself, self-publish totally. It's, it's great. Um, you know, your margins on the book are going to be a lot better. So if you have the ability to do that and to do it well, go for it. Um, what we find is most people either don't have the means or don't want to deal with this, with the administrative side of it, which is interesting too. So one of our authors, one of our best-selling authors, Keith Giles, he self-published for years. And then when he finally started publishing through us, he said, I'll never go back again. And Mm -hmm. I think for him, it's, part of it is the ability of not having to think through all the stuff in addition to writing. Sure. He wants to do what he does best. So he's going to write the book and he knows that he can hand it off and the rest of it's taken care of. That's nice. a huge you know, burden off his shoulders and he appreciates that. Another uh, benefit to publishing with someone is you get the um, added credibility of their brand. Sure. So that is something to keep in mind too. Um, too often when I see people self-publish, don't name your your self-publishing company after yourself. It just, it, it doesn't add any credibility to you. Yeah. you know, it, it's like you're screaming, Hey, this book is self-published. Sure. So at least try and come up with some pseudonym or some other name. So it seems so like you're good. published by yeah someone else. But for us, it does help our authors because as we, as we grow, we're uh, expanding the uh, exposure of, of the choir brand. And so hopefully at some point people will know, you know, they may not know the author, they may not know the book, but the fact that it was published by Choir, they're like, oh, that's got to be a book worth reading because I appreciate what this brand and this publishing company has put out before. So that can be a benefit as well. But again, if you have the means and the ability to self-publish, go for it. You know, wish you all the luck, but just be honest with yourself and and your limitations. 
what are some of the things that you're doing for Keith that he really likes that you guys are doing? I mean, I know any author would have to do this, but I'm just curious so people can unpack and really understand what it really takes to self-publish or publish a book in general. Yeah, I'd say, uh, well, at least for our books. So once a author submits a manuscript, um, we typically have a team of folks who will read the manuscript, provide feedback. That's very helpful for authors as well. Uh, too often they'll just write a book and then publish it without having anyone read. And I'm not even talking about editing. I'm talking about just actual readers. Um, so there's oftentimes we'll send back, you know, copious notes for revisions. And there's even been books that have taken a complete, you know, shift in, in how they were written because of that feedback and the books always come out stronger, which is something to keep in mind too. Don't be so, you know, wedded to your work that, Oh, this is my baby. I can't, can't touch it. You know, if you're partnering with someone who is committed just like you are to making the book and the work as strong as it can be, then you have to, you know, be a bit open-handed about that process. So that's part of it. Uh, Another part of it is we do have um, editors that we contract with that can help with proofreading and even content editing. Uh, The design piece is a big part of it. Uh, Designing, you know, people do judge a book by its cover. So making sure you have a great book cover design that not only is attractive, uh, but also matches your book as well. Um, too often you'll see book covers that may look cool, but there's such a distance between the cover and the content that it doesn't make for good marketing. So, and then the interior layout of the book is another one, um, putting together, you know, a website to promote the book and putting, helping put together interviews and podcast interviews and things like that. So there's a lot that goes into it, uh, that we, we try and handle everything other than the writing part so that the author can just focus on what they want to focus on and do best and then let us take care of the rest. It's amazing. How many people do you recommend be in the focus group to read the book? That's a good question. Um, I think 10 is probably a good minimum number. I love it. And, My favorite number. And, yeah. And you really want to make sure that you are representing your, your core audience well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, don't get just random people who agree, sure. but really focus in on who's the type of person I'm going after and then getting their feedback. And the important distinction I want to make when you are dealing with focus groups is uh, quite often people will give you solutions um, when instead you need to read between the lines and first understand the problems. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, there's, a, there's a great quote that illustrates it. I think it's attributed to Henry Ford. He said, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Sure. So when you're getting feedback from people, they'll often say, oh, you should do this or change this. or And you could take their suggestion and do it. But the problem is you're going to miss the underlying reason as to why they said that. So first try and figure out, well, why do they want this change? What's the problem they're having? Is it that they're not connecting? Is they need more information? Is it that I need to give more backstory? Because then it's really up to the author to, to come up with a solution to the problem and really just rely on the focus group to point out what the problem is. So I yeah, hope that's yeah. making sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to me uh, because I've, I've worked with an author before they're writing the book and it was pretty controversial. She's being very, very vulnerable, which I think is amazing. I, mm-hmm. I think it's probably one of the most underrated principles on the planet is being vulnerable. Yeah. And uh, some people read it, they, their feedback was like, Oh, that one's a little too much. I don't know. And really mm-hmm. it was just their own insecurities around the topic that they were mm-hmm. then projecting on the person who was writing because it yeah. made them uncomfortable. Yeah. And they're like, well, maybe I need to tone it down. It's like, no, you don't need to tone it down. Look at what's really going on. <laughs> right, uh, this right. person's identity is completely being challenged and they're fighting yeah. to defend it. And rather than them rather than them sitting in the pocket and seeing that, they're actually projecting uh, all of their bullshit and their self-sabotage on you, the author. So uh, Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so that's a great example. There, you could, there's two approaches you could take after receiving that feedback. One is you could tone it down. And in effect, you've neutered your book. 
yep. you've neutered one of the most like visceral, most important points in your book, or realizing what you're saying that they're just projecting their own insecurities, then what you can do is you can um, anticipate that in the text. Yeah. And so begin a conversation with the reader. So yeah, share the vulnerable part and That's say okay. something to the effect of like, hey, you may be having a hard time with this information. This could be an opportunity to pause and reflect, you know, just anticipating those thoughts. And, and that way, as someone's so reading good. it, you're kind of walking them through that process. And now they feel like you're inside their head, which yeah. is huge because yeah. if you're reading a book and you really feel like you're connecting with the author, that they get you, that they're working through your thought process, I think that has real lasting impact in that person's life. Yeah. And then just to anchor an example here for people listening. Uh, so that came up, you may some, say something like, hey, maybe you're thinking right now, or maybe you have some feelings where you're like, whoa, that's intense. And you're like, why did they write that? Well, I just want to let you know I'm writing it because I'm here to challenge your belief. I'm here. My goal with this book was to get you X result. So if you're being triggered right now and there's a lot of like guilt or shame or whatever's coming Mm -hmm. up for you, sit with it. Just like sit with it for a second and really start questioning and looking like, why is this triggering me? Like, why am I feeling angry or frustrated or whatever emotions that's invoking? Uh, And just be with that. So enough yeah. of that, let's get back into the book. And like, like you said, dude, those little small nuances, because the webinar game is very, very similar. Okay. Uh, man, you're just keeping people on track and keeping yeah. that, that psycho- psychological journey, journey. You're just keeping it going, 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 going. And totally. you're actually more of an expert, more of an authority, because you're like, they know this about me? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's awesome, great. dude. Well, dude, you've said a couple of times, uh, people do judge a book by cover. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. to dive into this kind of concept with you because you're a designer. So, um, like, what, what, like, how important is the book cover really? I, I mean, everybody judges the book cover, you know, book by the cover, but like, how mm-hmm. important is it really for the book? I mean, personally, I think it's massively important, yeah. uh, especially in the increasing, you know, digital shopping age that we're in. Uh, you're scrolling through Amazon, and you only get, you know, a little thumbnail of an image and more often than not it's a combination of the title catching your attention as well as the cover itself and realizing that you know you've got this much space to make that impression uh i think it really it really ups the game so i think again people do judge a book by its cover regardless of whether or not that's fair um so really paying attention to your your cover art um don't just grab stock imagery and slap a title on there. You know, people can spot stock photos from a mile away, but you know, really put some time and intention into it. And again, if you can't do it yourself, hire the right person to do it because that's, that's an investment that will definitely pay off. Nice. What are the things they should look at? I mean, um, I actually have an art degree. So, I mean, we, okay. every font has different meanings and evokes different feelings. Absolutely. Colors evoke different things and different feelings and different mm-hmm. meanings. So, like, what are the pieces that you really pay attention to when you design your uh, covers for your authors? Yes, yeah, so I think um, feeling is probably the, the first place I start. Awesome. Uh, what I, Something I like to do is when I'm doing design work for a book, I'll ask the author, Hey, give me a playlist or a couple of songs that you feel like capture uh, the essence of your book, because I'll nice. be listening to that as I'm designing. And so mm-hmm. it's just another, another uh, sensory input as I'm working and creating that can help kind of navigate and guide it. Uh, I think there's some basic design principles that come into play. I mean, you never yeah. want to use more than two or three fonts on a cover yeah. just because it can be really jarring, conflicting. Like you said, understanding the nuances and the subconscious uh, effects that fonts have. So certain fonts uh, feel more uh, like expert or academic or high class. Um, other fonts are more playful or laid back or modern and making sure you're pairing it correctly uh, with your book. Again, colors 
have a significant part to play. I mean, if you go with really strong blacks and reds, those tend to be a bit more inflammatory, a bit more aggressive, which maybe that's the point you're trying to get across in your book. If you go more lighter pastels, then that's going to have like a softer, um, possibly more feminine appeal. Um, if you go with bright neon colors, you're probably going to attract more of a younger audience, or maybe it's a throwback to like a nineties kind of vibe, but just being really intentional about that and making sure it works, uh, getting feedback from people is, is really helpful too. Sometimes you'll, create a design you think it's great and you show it to a couple of trusted people and they're getting a whole different impression than you are and you know okay i gotta rework something here so uh meg's book actually we had a completely different color design cover designed and um showed it to a few people and they're like "Ah, something doesn't something doesn't quite match and so back to the drawing board reworked it and then ended up with the cover we have now so yeah i think uh don't treat your cover as an afterthought just put as much time and intention into it as you did to the content itself. Awesome. And for some people, they, they have like a personal brand, right? And mm-hmm. they may have worked with a branding guy like yourself or somebody else. And so they're like, okay, these are my fonts for my brand, right? right? For my personal brand. These are my colors. And I think some people make the mistake on thinking they need to then take that mm. and then project it into the book because they're like, well, this needs to be on brand. And I would have to consider, and maybe I'm wrong, so we'll, we'll see what if you agree or don't agree. It doesn't matter. It's multiple paths yeah. the mountain. But my philosophy is, is the book is like, it's its own brand. It's like a child. It's like you have a mother and, let's say, a daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, the mother may dress a certain way and have it her own style and way she speaks and her own cadence. And mm-hmm. the daughter is going to be its own human with its own purpose, <laughs> its own style, and its own well, you know, experience. They're both of the same, but yet they're vastly different. Would you mm-hmm. agree that that is kind of the same when it comes to creating books? You have a, if you're a personal brand, you have the mm-hmm. brand, the mother, and then you have these children and they're just their own creations with their <laughs> own brands. Would you agree? Right. right. Uh, I would agree with a caveat in that, yes, they're their own creations. Um, but just like in humans, you pass down DNA. So you can look at a kid and he's his own person, but you see his parents, you're like, Oh, that's, that's that kid's parents. And so I think there's a sense where, yeah, don't feel so tied to your personal brand that you're trying to force something to happen on your book, but do recognize that it exists within this ecosystem and that there are inherited traits that come from your personal brand. So yeah, you may not use the exact same font, but you want to capture the same feel that your personal brand does. Right. So Yeah. yeah. So there should be some sense of relatability, um, where they go together, but it doesn't have to be identical. Nice. Which is more of a vibe and an experience piece. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Cool, yeah. man. So we talked about the cover. I want to switch gears to the inner uh, piece of the book because mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of authors really pay attention to this and they don't invest enough time. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a good friend of mine, Jason Osborne. He's a brilliant designer and he really uh, is brilliant at like user experience uh, okay. on everything, even in like creating a company culture. He really thinks through the user experience, like yeah. what is their relationship, like the person who's working with their manager, is it a good user experience, is it a bad user experience? The client facing piece, is it a good user experience, a bad user experience? The web, Everything, it's all a user experience and the better that yeah. user experience is, the more you're gonna retain clients. Mm-hmm. I feel like a book is the same way, man. So what advice do you have for somebody to create a really good reading experience? Yeah, I mean, there's some basic principles again that, that come into play here. Um, the size of the font, um, the spacing between the lines, which is called letting, yeah. um, the size of the margins. I mean, if you're staring at a page, uh, a lot of folks will say that as they're reading, they kind of lose their place or they have a hard time focusing. So the more that you can 
do and implement to make that reading experience easier, the better. So giving uh, places for their eyes to rest and giving enough white space around the page. I mean, I've seen books where, you know, they're trying to cram so much text on a page that it's overwhelming when you first look at it. And so making sure you have some healthy breathing room there, making sure the font you pick is a readable font. In general, for print, serif fonts work the best. If you don't know what a serif font is, it's the kind with like the little lines on the tips and the ends of it. So a classic one, like if you just want to go default classic is Garamond. That's mm-hmm. like one of the one of the best fonts for reading. Nice. When it comes to digital applications, sans serifs work the best, the fonts that don't have little tips on sure. the end. So yeah, you know, if you're doing like an ebook or a Kindle version, you know, that's probably the default there. But when it comes to print, using a good serif font that's easy to read, don't use some fancy, weird looking font because your eyes will get tired if you're, you know, reading long sections of it. You can use those for you know, chapter headings or something like that as like a visual element, but really focus on the reading experience. If anyone wants to kind of see uh, a cool video that um, gives some inspiration and kind of shows the thought that can go into the reading experience, there was a, I believe it was a Kickstarter project uh, a couple of years ago called Bibliotheca. Um, and what this designer did was he basically wanted to create a new version of the Bible that was very design forward and really focused on the reading experience. And so he goes into, at least in the Kickstarter video, he goes into details of like what he did to make that happen. And you just watch that and you begin to realize, man, there's so much thought and intention that goes into producing something that's not only beautiful to look at, but really pleasurable to experience. And so he gives some great examples and there's visuals that go with it. So if you're you know, not familiar with any of that process at all, just watching that video will just give you a glimpse into what, you know, what's possible and, and the level of detail and care and attention that can go into this process. Cool, man. Do you think people should publish uh, hardcover books as well? I'm no, you know, softcover and Kindle, but do you think hardcovers are still a thing? That's a good question. We haven't uh, actually, like, we've done one hardcover and it's because we published a journal. So in that instance, it made sense to have something that felt a bit more um, I don't know, high, high price point And, sure. you know, you're going to carry it around. It's a year long journal type of thing. In general, we stick with paperbacks uh, more so because the profit margin is better. Hardbacks are just really expensive to produce. Uh, it seems like most of the folks that I talk to, if a book first comes out, they'll wait for the paperback version just to save money on it. Yeah. So I think hardbounds are awesome when it comes to like a special edition or a collection of something, mm. but just as a general rule, I don't know that hardbacks are, are worth, you know, the investment yeah, the effort. Makes sense, yeah. man. How does somebody copyright their work? So I believe uh, the way that U S copyright law works technically is once you create it, you know, you basically own the copyright on it. You can go through the, the actual process of copywriting it through the government. Uh, I forget what the URL is. Just do a Google search and you can look it up and, spend money, fill out a form, you can get it officially copyrighted. But I think in terms of U.S. copyright law, I could be wrong. Um, but I thought when I had looked it up before, it was, you know, you create the work and it's technically copyrighted. Um, but the more that you do with it, so, you know, set up a web page, which has a timestamp of when you created it. And all, so basically all the creation work that goes into it um, adds to your, your copyright case. Another cheap way that people do it is they'll certify mail themselves a copy sure. of whatever their work is and then don't open it, you know, save it. So there's, there's a lot of ways to go about it. Cool. Um, yeah. And it just depends on the level of um, confidence, I guess, that you want yeah. in your, in your copyright. Sure. Yeah. What are you seeing are like the best ways to market books these days? 
Uh, that is a moving target. <laughs> yeah. I mean, social media is a, is a powerful tool. Um, part of the difficulty with social media is at any point they change their algorithm sure. and that's going to have to change your marketing strategy. And the fact that you don't technically own that audience makes it difficult too. So I know it's still, I think it's still important to develop a email list to have yeah. people's actual contact information. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing more uh, rise of text message marketing because it's, it's more direct, it's more connected. Um, I don't know that, that some of the traditional, at least for small authors, some of the traditional marketing methods work, like, you know, hiring a, a publicist or PR person to try and sure. get you on, you know, TV, sure. radio. I mean, reaching out to podcasts has proven uh, very helpful for us. Even if it's a smaller audience, um, you'd be surprised the opportunities to come out of that. And for a new and up and coming author, I would actually recommend that you do a couple smaller podcast interviews before you start going for the larger ones. Because learning how to interview well is is an art form. And so you, you kind of want to get your feet wet and get used to it before, you know, jumping on a, a larger podcast interview. So, yeah, I think, I think taking advantage of multiple outlets, um, considering where are people getting their information, um, and then, you know, trying to go after those, those outlets is, is helpful. Nice. Yeah, dude, I totally recommend uh, the email list building piece. I feel like a lot of people totally overlook it because that's the strategy from what? Well, pretty much since the beginning of time, uh, yeah. there's direct mail or buying list or whatever, but <laughs> right. in the digital age, it's a little bit different, but I feel like a lot of authors don't do it. Uh, and they, I think they make a mistake of, they think that, you know, they are putting all this work in writing, 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 mm-hmm. writing, 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 writing. And they're like, okay, I've heard this thing when they could have been sharing the whole process. They could have been sharing their chapters publicly or little bits of them and building an audience, the entire creative process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then saying, you know, pushing them to an offer of like, Hey, you want to watch me write this book and I'll, you know, once a week, I'll tell you what I'm working on. We can feed and like, you know, opt in, mm-hmm. build the list, build the list, build the list, pre-launch, pre-launch, and then go into a legitimate launch, pre-launch, build up the hype and then your launch and then your post-launch. Yeah. I don't know why enough more authors don't uh, do it. I, I mean, I do because they're creative and they don't want to market <laughs> and they don't want to sell because that's, you know, the man. Yeah. Uh, that's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. Yeah. And I think the other part too, like I mentioned before, is um, they're either not good at it and so they're nervous about it or they just don't want to deal with it. They want to write. They want to do what they know. And so having to do the marketing side of it just feels like a whole different beast. And So yeah, yeah. it can be daunting. I found that dude, uh, marketing, it's usually a mindset thing, I think, for a lot of creatives because they think marketing is, is sales or bad right. or evil. Right. Sleazy. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's all their own uh, internal limiting belief bullshit that they get to work through. Because yeah. marketing is nothing more than just creative work. You're writing creative copy, uh, adding value into the marketplace, serving the marketplace. Yeah. So there's a way to find that balance where you can still be very creative and very influential and very persuasive mm-hmm. and serve a lot of people where people love to read your salesy content, actually. Right, right. You know, there is a balance. Yeah. Well, and the irony is that we, we market all the time without yes. realizing it. Even people that, you know, the word marketing leaves a bad taste in their mouth. If you've ever recommended something to a friend, you just marketed on behalf of that product. So So it can be as, as easy as that. It can be as authentic as that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people, especially in the Amazon world, uh, you know, they're all about becoming an Amazon bestseller. Uh, I know a lot of people in the marketing game who have studied this game. When we see people who's an Amazon bestseller, like, geez, what was your category? Do you sell five books, 10 books? (laughs) Right. Right. Good for you. Um, So with that being said, how important do you feel it is? Like, a, is it a worthy target to go after being an Amazon bestseller? Is that still a worthy target for authors? 
Yeah, for me personally, I do think so. Uh, Because I think for the general audience, um, the fact that you can say bestseller still holds weight. Um, Yeah, you can't say New York Times bestseller, but it's still a bestseller. So it it still adds some credibility, especially if most folks don't know you. And the other thing too with Amazon is when you do hit their bestseller list, whatever category in, then that kicks off some algorithms and some internal marketing that Amazon does where your book starts popping up in other places as well. So I think it's still worthwhile um, shooting for that goal because then some extra magic begins to happen at that point behind the scenes that you really don't have control over. So awesome, man. Well, dude, uh, I'm going to wrap this up, man. Is there any like inspirational thing you feel led to share to somebody that wants to write a nonfiction book? You can say no, by the way, but if there (laughs) is anything you feel led to say, what is it? Just do it. If you're, if you're feeling it, uh, in you and you know that there's something that has to come out, just make it happen. Um, you'll have enough excuses. You'll have enough limiting beliefs, overcome it. Even if you don't sell a single copy, the fact that you did it and you got it out there, I think there's going to be a sense of gratification and outlet and release that you'll be proud of yourself. So just do it. Awesome. And for those of you who want to check out Ralph and his choir publishing group, uh, just go to choir.com. It's Q U O I R.com choir.com Q U uh, OIR.com. Are you guys uh, taking more authors? If they want to publish, what type of authors are you working with? Yeah. So we're always open to accepting manuscripts. Um, we're pretty backlogged right now in terms of reviewing submissions, which is a good problem to have. But sure. uh, on the site itself, there's a link that says submit a proposal. So if anyone's awesome. interested, they can fill out a form and, and send their manuscript to us. But yeah, if you check out our site, you can see the type of content we publish and if it's a good fit or if you want to pursue it, do it through the site. And for somebody who has resources uh, uh, that just wants to hire a designer, do you ever take freelance design work to, you know, design their books or anything? I used to, and I just okay. don't have the time now. So awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. appreciate the plug though. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming out of the show, dude. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, just sharing your wisdom, brother. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor. Well, there you have it, my friend, Ralph Palindo of Choir Publishing. If you're thinking of writing a book, I hope this episode specifically served you. I hope it gave you some insights and it really inspires you to really go for it because the world needs your message and they're hungry for it. So ship your message. Now, if you feel called to write a book and you're really struggling uh, you know, to, like, to get it out, to write it, to sit down and do it, I have a free training for you. It's called The Three Ancient Secrets Experts, Influencers, and Coaches Are Using to Increase Their Impact and Income, and it will help you destroy your limiting beliefs and get into action fast. So if you're at a place where you're wondering, like, what's the next level of success for yourself, or why do you seem to be sitting on the sidelines while everyone else seems to be winning, you know, their game, I'm telling you, register, go watch this training immediately. It will totally help you. You can do that by going to trainingwithaj.com right now. It's 100% free, and trust me, you're going to thank me later. So just go to www.trainingwithaj.com to get registered. Now, that's all I have for this episode, so thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having an amazing day, and I can't thank you enough for plugging me and this show into your ear holes twice a week. Um, This is something that I don't take lightly because there's so many podcasts that you could be listening to, and you're choosing this one. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. So I hope you have an incredible day, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is where you're listening to this show. Until next time, my friend, I'm out. Peace. That's all for this episode of the Anthony John Amex podcast. But we have plenty more to help you achieve a life of freedom, purpose, and success. 
Head on over to AJAmix.com for exclusive resources, information, and tools to break through to new levels of peace, power, and profit. We look forward to having you back for the next episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast. Bye for now.